0: Good morning. It is a joy to see you guys. Worship team, thank you guys. All after a morning in which you guys lost an extra hour of sleep as well. So thank you guys. These guys get up here for rehearsal way before I'm even up here on most Sunday mornings. And so for you guys, thank you guys for leading us. Thank you guys for serving us this morning. We're going to be Hebrews chapter eight. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews eight. Uh, As you're turning there, uh, let me just remind you guys of a couple of things. Uh, First of all, I know you guys have all kinds of midterms this week, which denotes that spring break is just a week away, five days away. You guys can make it. Uh, With spring break coming, uh, just as one reminder for you guys, we do not meet on spring break. So next Sunday and the Sunday after, we will not be here for college, and so uh, we wish you guys an incredible break. We'll miss you guys, and we will resume on March 29th. That's a big event weekend, so we'll be back here. So two Sundays off, and then we'll be back in three weeks. We'll see you guys as you guys. Hope you guys have a great Spring break. Uh, One other thing coming after spring break, if you guys will notice, on your uh, tables are these little parents' lunch postcard deals, all right? And it says, uh, parents' lunch 2015, Saturday, April 18th. And so uh, on every parents' weekend, we've started to do a kind of a parents' luncheon. And so if your parents are coming in, we would love to meet them. We'd love to hang out with them. And so on that Saturday at lunchtime, we're going to host a lunch right here for you guys and your parents uh, in the main foyer uh, on that Saturday, April 18th. And so what we'd love for you guys to do is simply... Uh, just address this to your parents. And so if you'll find it on your table, if you'll simply grab it, grab a pen, put your parents' name and address on it, and then we are going to mail it to them for you, all right? So you don't need to take it with you. You don't need to put a stamp on it. If you'll just simply address it and then leave it on the table, we'll grab it and then we'll mail it to them because we'd love to have them and you on Parents Weekend. All right, Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to pick it up, verse 1. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 1. I'll tell you guys, uh, I'm really excited about this passage. I think it's an incredibly encouraging passage as we jump in. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 1. The writer of Hebrews tells us that now the main point in what has been said is this, that we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which which was shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your incredible grace and lavishness bestowed to us through the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, as we look more closely at the nature of his priesthood, Lord, I pray that you would teach us this morning that you would show us the ramifications of the kind of priest he is and the way that it makes a practical difference in our lives day in and day out, the way that the nature of his priesthood changes our own approach to and battle with sin. Uh, Lord, that it would change forever our own feeling of inadequacy before you, Lord, that we would understand that we're adequate in you this morning because of his priesthood and what he's done on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning that you'd remove distractions and, Lord, that you'd allow our short time here in your word Uh, Lord, that you teach us as you see fit, that our discussions this morning would be transformative as we jump back into your word even after this talk, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, I'll tell you guys, uh, one of the incredible privileges I have as a college pastor is that I get the opportunity to officiate weddings often. Uh, And so uh, every summer, those especially kind of get whipped up and uh, summer takes on and we're doing weddings uh, like a wedding circuit. It's kind of fun. Our daughter has often become a flower girl, so we're kind of like a combo team these days. Um, But uh, one of the things I'll tell you guys is the first time I ever did a wedding, uh, as much as I was excited and joyful about it, I was absolutely frightened, terrified. I uh, think about a couple, think about a wedding, and this is a moment that this couple has been looking forward to their whole lives. For some brides, they've been dreaming about that day in perfection their whole lives, you know? Uh, and there's no real redo on a wedding. Like, as, as a speaker or as an officiant, like, either you hit a home run or you kind of botch it, but there's no, like, Next Sunday, next sermon to kind of come back to it, right? Uh, if I were to have a bad Sunday, hopefully you guys come back the next week, but I could hopefully kind of fix it the next week, right? Or if you're a quarterback of a football team, your team loses because you threw three picks, you come back to the next Sunday and you fix it in another game. Well, in a wedding, there's, there's one shot at it, there's no other opportunity. And so I remember stepping into that wedding with all kinds of pressure, all kinds of expectations, having never done it ever in my life before, and I remember feeling, woefully inadequate for the moment. I remember thinking, who am I and what do I have to do and what do I have to share here in this kind of a, of, of a setting? And what do I do if I blow it? What if it goes poorly? I'll tell you guys, my first wedding ever was going masterfully. <laughs> Until I hit the wedding vows, all right. And so I was going along, and I kind of hit the wedding vows. And at that point, in a wedding ceremony, you're, you're kind of in the home stretch. You're almost done. You're almost there. You can kind of relax. You can kind of let your hair down, if you will, if you had hair, uh, whatever, you know. Uh, and so I would hit the wedding vows. I was completely almost done. I'd kind of been almost flawless and perfect through it. And I hit the wedding vows, and I made one simple little measly pronoun change. And I said it in the wedding vows, and I thought something doesn't seem just right. And then the groom repeats back to me exactly what I said, and I thought, oh, no. And then the audience realizes what's just happened, and the audience completely loses it, because what I did was I had changed a pronoun in such a way that I had the groom promising forever and all of eternity to be the bride. It was horrible, absolutely horrible. And when that moment happened, the whole crowd just loses it, it erupts in laughter, and it took me about five minutes to get them under control. And at that point in time, I remember in the wedding ceremony, the stage lights just got really really hot. And I just wanted to run. I just wanted to get so far away. I think I talked about 100 miles an hour the rest of the service. I just wanted to get done with the ceremony. I felt so embarrassed. All of those feelings of inadequacy came flashing right back, proven to be true. All right. Uh, In in many ways, though, I don't know if you guys have had those moments in your life where you just feel as you step in towards something, you just feel woefully inadequate. Maybe it's for you guys this week because you have four midterm, midterm, tests that are coming up, you're like, how am I going to get through this week? Uh, maybe for you guys, it's been a girl that, or a guy that you've kind crushed on for like a year and you're going to get a first date and you're thinking, what do I do now? I have wanted this moment for like a year. I'm finally here and I feel like I don't know what in the world I'm going to do. Maybe it's an interview for you. Maybe there's a situation or a moment in time where you've just felt inadequate and you didn't know what to do. I think for many of us, it's not just true in our kind of normalized, but even in our spiritual lives, we have those moments all the time where we just feel woefully inadequate. Maybe you have a sense that God's calling you or leading you to something and you think, how in the world do I step in and through that moment? Maybe you're completely clear as to all the commands and what God has called you to do and how he's called you to obey. But maybe even in your own battle with sin, you feel woefully inadequate time after time after time. Maybe a friend has gone through a tragedy and you feel compelled that you've got to step into a moment and you need to speak and you feel woefully inadequate. You have no idea what to say. You have no idea what to do in that moment. If you've ever felt like that or if you feel like that, Hebrews chapter 8 to me is one of the most encouraging passages in this entire book. Uh, Last week as we looked at Hebrews chapter 6, it was one of the most challenging passages in our book. Uh, And Hebrews 8, though, I think that we're going to look at this morning is one of the most encouraging passages in our book. Hebrews 6 is all about a people group who were struggling in immaturity. They should have been teachers, but they were still spiritual infants Hebrews 8 is going to be how these people move from infancy in their spiritual lives to maturity. Hebrews 8 is going to be how they move and they become teachers and they become leaders. In fact, it's really interesting to me as you think about the book of Hebrews, a group of people who are under persecution, Christianity at the time that was nothing more than a cult that was being persecuted. In a few short hundred years, this Christianity, this little dismissed and hidden cult that is under the radar will become the official religion of the Roman Empire. What happened in a few short hundred years for Christianity to become nothing more than a cult, to become the official religion of the Roman Empire? How did that change happen? How did it, in a sense, go viral, if you will? Hebrews 8 is going to be really the the secret to that. Hebrews 8 is going to show you how this group moves from infancy to maturity. Hebrews 8 is going to show you how this people group and how this thing called Christianity is going to move from cult to official religion of the Roman Empire. Chapter 8 and the truths in it, I'll tell you for me, as I walked through college, were some of the most transformational of anything I discovered in the spiritual life in college. Chapter 8 and the truths that are here transform me and changed me more than any other passage and any other set of truths that I ever ran across in college. If there is one text in this book I could teach you, it would be Hebrews chapter 8. There's a set of principles or a set of truths I could unpack for you in your college time. It's what we're going to see here in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8 takes this religion from cult to official religion of the Roman Empire. Hebrews chapter 8 and the truths here flip the script completely of the uh, the Roman Empire at the time. And if it could do that for the Roman Empire, then what Hebrews 8 can do in our little old lives is absolutely revolutionary and transformational. Let me show you what's here, Hebrews chapter 8. As we jump in, we've been kind of walking through this book, and verse, verse 1 of Hebrews 8 kind of resets us as to where we are in the book. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1, the writer of Hebrews tells us that now the main point of what has been said is this, that we have such a high priest. What the writer of Hebrews is going to do in chapter 8 is going to continue to unpack for us exactly what is the nature of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And if you've been with us all spring, really this continues to be the theme we've looked at through much of the book, that not just of the priesthood of Jesus, but of the superiority of Jesus. But as we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews has been comparing Jesus to a whole set of examples of people that he's going to be compared to. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw that the writer of Hebrews compared Jesus to prophets and to angels and said that Jesus is better than them. That Jesus is better than the prophets of the Old Testament, and Jesus is even better than angels. In chapters 3 and 4, we saw the writer of Hebrews compare Jesus to Moses, and he says that Jesus is even better than Moses. And what he does, beginning at the end of chapter 4, all the way through chapter 10, is really the crux of the book, and it hangs on the theme that Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. Or the Old Testament priests, excuse me. That he's better than the Old Testament priest. Ryan Pell kind of opened up this section for us a couple weeks ago, and really this morning we're going to jump into this even more. We're going to see really that Jesus' priesthood is going to show us that he is better than our own inadequacy. That Jesus' priesthood is going to change the game in the sense of how we deal with and how we wrestle with inadequacy in our lives. And so if you've ever felt that way, then Hebrews 8 really takes that thing and it flips it upside down for us. Because we're going to see two basic things this morning. The first is this, that Jesus as priest has a better priestly place. That as priest, he has a better priestly place than the Old Testament priests in the place that they served. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 2 again. Notice what we find. Actually, beginning in verse 1. That we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens that this priest, this Jesus, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. He's set down and he's in a place that is very much different than the place of all of the Old Testament priests. And the writer of Hebrews continues that and explains that further when he says in verse 2 that he's a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Notice where this priest is. Notice where Jesus is. Now if he were on earth like the Old Testament priest... He would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. The writer of Hebrews is comparing the Old Testament priests to this priest Jesus, and he's comparing them on the basis of the place that they reside. And what he's saying is that they, the Old Testament priests, resided and they served in a temple or in a tabernacle that was erected by men on earth, but this Jesus serves in a tabernacle that's the true tabernacle that resides in heaven as he's set down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. This Jesus is in a superior place than the priests of the Old Testament, which is why he's better than them. He's in a better place. And specifically, as he talks about the Old Testament priests, notice the way that he talks about them. He says that they are on earth and that they are, uh, verse 5, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In a sense, the priests of the Old Testament were playing pretend. Uh, some of you guys know this, but we have two kids in our home right now uh, who have wild imaginations. Uh, just yesterday morning, uh, Caroline, my daughter, and I uh, took off for a little carnival at a public school really close to us. And we came back, and we decided we'd play a little joke on Mom, Marcy, all right? Uh, and so we thought it'd be great. They had this little area where you could get like a fake cast kind of put on your arm. We thought this would be awesome. And so on the way home, we called Marcy, and we are like, Hey, just want you to know, Caroline's had a little accident. Don't worry. It's nothing big. And so we show up with this cast on Caroline's arm, at which point Caroline cannot hold it together. She can't even look at Marcy. And so she just wants to b- b- bust out laughing. So she's got her head buried in my chest, all right? And it didn't last more than three seconds. Marcy saw through it the entire way. But our kids love imagining right now. Cole, our little boy, who's like two and a half, he loves to pretend mow. He loves to pretend drive. He loves to pretend cook. Sometimes he even likes to pretend obey. I mean, just keeps pretending... <laughs> All the time, all right? Now, as much as they like to pretend and as as wild as their imaginations are right now, the imagination and the pretend never is an adequate substitute for the real thing. Colt would absolutely love to get behind my Honda Accord and drive that thing. Now, his feet are about four feet away from the pedals, which kind of creates a little bit of a problem. But if he could, he would love to drive. The pretend, even even in the midst of their imagination, the pretend never holds a candle to the real thing. And the reality is the superiority of place often denotes the superiority of someone's achievement or or status. Think about this. Uh, Why is it when you and I walk through a plane, we have absolute jealousy of those that are in first class? They're in a superior place. They have more legroom. They have food that we don't have. And we walk past them, and they look, as, look at us as if they realize that we know that they're better people, right? They're better people than us, which is why they're in a better spot. Or you look at the person who's sitting courtside. Or you think about the person who has a special card, who gets access to a special level to get a penthouse suite in a hotel. They're just better than us. Okay, they're not. But it feels like that way, right? Right, right? They're in a better place. Really, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say to you and I is that Jesus is in a better place, and he's not playing pretend, and because of that, he's, in a, he's a better priest and he can deal with our issues better than any other priest can. If you're going to take a girl out on a date, do you want a pretend chef or do you want someone who can really actually cook for you? You want the real thing. In the midst of your own inadequacy, in the midst of your own sins and your own struggles, do you want a priest who can actually reside on your behalf and represent you before God or do you want a pretend one who imagines and kind of plays dollhouse for you? I want the real thing. I don't want a pretend counselor helping me unpack my issues. I want the real thing. What the writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience is that Jesus is the real McCoy. He's the real deal. He's not playing pretend. He's in a place that's unlike the Old Testament priests, they don't even hold a candle to him. He's the real deal, which is why he can cope for us. He can represent us. He can impact our lives in a way that the Old Testament priest never could. But what's really transformational about this section, what's really unpacked here is not the place that Jesus resides, although it is superior, even more so it's his promises. That Jesus has a set of priestly promises that are way more significant and way better than anything the Old Testament priest had. And what he's going to say in verses six and on is a little bit complicated, so let me try to unpack it for you, but it's this, simply this that the promises that this priest brings you and I blow away anything that the Old Testament priests could have brought you and I. And he's going to highlight it based on the different covenants the different agreements that they oversaw. Notice what he says in verse six. But now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Well, what is a Covenant. A covenant is something we see often throughout much of the Old Testament. A covenant is an ancient version of what we would call a contract. Nothing more, all right? A covenant is simply a contract between two parties with specific terms and promises. So when you and I sign an agreement or we sign a contract, it's between us and whoever else is signing it, and our signing it is our way of saying we're in. We're agreeing to it, or a handshake. In the Old Testament, you had all different kinds of covenants. You had some covenants that were sealed by, uh, they'd take little... Uh, little uh, pieces of salt from salt packets and they would transfer it. I don't know what's going on. It's kind of weird, but that's what they did, all right? They would exchange sandals. That's just the way that they signed covenants, all right? Or sometimes they'd actually kill an animal and with its blood, they would seal a very serious covenant. And what you're going to have happening here in Hebrews chapter 8 is that the writer of Hebrews is going to detail two different covenants. One covenant that the Old Testament priests were over and residing over, and one covenant that Jesus is residing over. And based on those two covenants, he's going to compare them and say that these covenants are different, and Jesus' covenant is better than the Old Testament priest's covenant. Let me try to explain it to you as he continues on in verse 7. Notice what he says. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So there are two covenants. There's a first covenant and there's a second covenant. Chronologically, the first covenant is the covenant of the priest of the Old Testament. The second covenant is referring to here is the priest or the covenant of Jesus the priest. Specifically, the first covenant that is going to refer to here is what we call the old covenant. The second covenant is also what we refer to as the new covenant. The first covenant or the old covenant is also what we refer to as the Mosaic covenant. It's the law. It's the, uh, it's what was contained on tablets. It was the list of commands and ordinances that the nation of Israel was to obey. The new covenant is a completely different covenant that was promised to Israel looking toward the future that Jesus himself will inaugurate and bring to fruition. And notice exactly how the writer of Hebrews compares these. Why is the second covenant, why is Jesus' covenant better than The covenant of the Old Testament. Why is Jesus' covenant or the new covenant better than the old covenant? Notice what he says in verse 8. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with our fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant and I did not care for them, says the Lord. That's strong language. Remember, this is being quoted in the Old Testament. And what's happening is that Israel has disobeyed the law. And because they've disobeyed the law, they're actually, in a sense, kind of in timeout. They're experiencing the discipline of God. And yet the grace of God is such that even while they're in discipline for their disobedience, God shows up and promises them a new covenant that will allow them to fulfill his promises in a way that the old covenant never did. Notice what the text, notice it says, verse 8, finding fault with them. Also, verse 9, not like the covenant which I made with our fathers. Uh, <clears throat> and he says there, for they did not continue my covenant and I did not care for them. Don't know if you've ever been in a movie, watching a movie, or have been in a dating relationship and someone gave to you the classic line, it's not you, it's me, which is why we're breaking up, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. It's the worst line ever uttered to man, all right, or to woman. Here's the deal. God doesn't play that game. God doesn't say, it's not you, it's me. Actually, what he says is, it's not me, it's, it's actually you. <laughs> you are the problem, which is why we're at an impasse, all right? But here's his grace. Even in that moment, what he's going to do is he goes, you're the problem because you're the problem. What I'm going to do in a new covenant that's going to come is I'm going to fix the issues that you have. The reason why you can't obey me, the reason why you don't want to obey me, the reason why we continue to be at odds with one another, I'm going to come in in this new covenant, in this new contract, and what I'm going to do is going to be so different than what I did in the Old Testament that I'm going to fix the issues that are in your life so that you're going to want to obey me and you're going to be able to obey me. The promises that he unfolds here are absolutely transformational. Notice verses 10, 11, and 12. He says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. It's not you. It's not me. It's you, God says to the nation of Israel. But what he's going to do in the new covenant is he's going to come to his people and he's going to fix internally the issues that were in them so that they now will obey. The new covenant and our experience with it is profoundly different than the nation of Israel's experience with the old covenant with the law. Let me give you guys a couple specific examples of what I mean. Why are these promises so great? Well, first of all, you can get a sense of a desire to obey. Uh, when God gave the nation of Israel the Old Test or gave them the the co- the Old Covenant or the Law in the Old Testament, what He said to them in Deuteronomy chapter five, verse twenty nine, was this: "Oh, that they had a heart in them that they would obey." <laughs> even when God gave them the Law, even when God, in His grace, gave them a clear sense of what it is that He wanted and what it is that He desired, He recognized that in them was a des- was a heart that was opposed to Him. And what He's going to do in the New Covenant is He's going to bring about a transformation of the heart in a way that we never saw in the Old Testament. You're going to get a desire to obey now in the new covenant. Which is why he says there in verse 10, uh, it, is not, it is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, what God says is, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. That in the midst of the nation of Israel's disobedience, God looked at them and said this, I know that you don't have a heart that desires to obey me. I know that you're not going to obey. And so what I'm going to do in a day that's going to come forward is I'm going to bring about a new covenant that will be shed and inaugurated by blood. And when that blood is shed, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to begin to work in the person's heart in such a way that the inclinations, the dispositions, the tendencies of that heart are going to begin to change. Um, I, to this day, hate vegetables, which is a little bit awkward when our kids are watching the dinner table and like they 're all eating broccoli and i 'm like just trying to choke down one all right. That creates a little bit of a problem for Marcy all right uh, but um, at least so for me though growing up I, I still to this day I remember being at the dinner table, and my parents would put food in front of me, and there were kind of like a, a holy trinity of vegetables that I had the hardest time with, one was corn, which. I, I still to this day hate corn. The second was asparagus, and I still to this day hate asparagus. And the third was sweet potatoes, which I don't know if it's a vegetable technically. But for me, those three were like this holy trinity of vegetables that I could not even fathom consuming. I, I just would want to hurl in the very moment. So if you had that for lunch, God bless you, you're better than me, all right? <coughs> but my parents would put that down at the dinner table, and they'd expect me to eat. And they would wait me out, and I couldn't get up from the table until I ate I would wait them out because I knew they had better things to do than I did. And so eventually my mom would cave and go, If you could just kind of eat this, and it'll be done. So I would just try to choke down like one spoonful of corn. And then I would erase it down with milk because I just couldn't handle it. And my dad would look at me with just utter fury, <laughs> just utter frustration that I would not eat what was good for me. And I remember thinking, It's not my fault that this is the most disgusting thing on the face of the earth, right? Like, if you could just change your frustration and understand my situation, it would be so much of a different deal. But, but what if my dad, who's not all-powerful, who can't change anything internally in me, what if he had the ability to actually change my taste buds so that I actually desired to eat what was good? That's actually even sometimes at the dinner table what I long for. I remember thinking, Lord, why can't I just like this stuff? I just can't. I just don't. But what if somehow my taste buds could be changed so that I actually like it? It's a game changer. That's the same kind of game changer that we're seeing here happening from the movement from the old covenant and the law to the new covenant under Jesus Christ. What the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell his audience and what he's trying to tell you and I is that God has changed our taste buds so that we now slowly but surely begin to delight in and actually appreciate and long for righteousness. Righteousness. That's what he's saying. I'm going to put their law, my law on their hearts. It's not going to be an external set of tablets, an external set of commands, but I'm now going to change the very inclination of their heart. I remember a story years ago of a hotel that was out at a pier, and as it looked out on a pier, it had a walkway where you could kind of walk by and look out of the water, and after about 10, 15 years of being there, someone, an employee thought, you know what, it would be really bad if someone started to fish here from the pier because they would fish and their lure would go out and come back and it would hit the glass and maybe shatter the glass or scratch the glass of the hotel as it looked out on the water. So they decided, you know what, maybe we should actually kind of prevent this from actually happening. And so they put a sign up on the, the balcony or on that walkway that said, no fishing. 15 years, no one ever had a desire to fish there. All of a sudden they put up a sign and guess what? They start having a fishing problem. <laughs> People all of a sudden start showing up wanting to fish there. Because see, the the nature of the human heart is that when there's a law that's put external to us, our initial instinctual response is to push back against it, right? That's why when mom and dad said, eat the vegetables, I was just like, no, no, right? I just don't, I can't, I don't want to. What God is saying here with the new covenant is that when his law comes down, when his expectation and righteousness comes down, he's going to not put it external to us, but he's going to write it on our heart so that the heart begins to change. And it begins to change slowly but surely so that what we desire if we know the person of Jesus Christ is that we begin to slowly but surely delight in righteousness more and more. And it's not just that he changes the heart. It's not just that we get a desire to obey, we also get an ability to obey. Paul will say in Romans chapter 8 that the law was weak, that it could not actually cause us to obey the Old Testament law. That when God said, do this, do that, the problem was the heart didn't desire to do it in the Old Testament And there was no ability to actually fulfill it. And so all the law was like was a flashlight that revealed how far we had to go and how imperfect we were. I don't know if Christianity feels that way to you, as if it's a list of do's and don'ts that just say, hey, this is what God wants and good luck with it. That's what life was like in the Old Testament, frankly. That's not what life is like for you and I. If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ and if we live under the provisions of the new covenant, it's a very, very different ballgame. It's a game changer because he actually gives us the desire to obey. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, it's quoted elsewhere in the Old Testament in which it says this, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. The other provision of the new covenant is that God is going to put his spirit actually in us if we know Jesus Christ so that we will be caused and we will be able to walk in his statutes and to obey. The deficiencies of the Old Testament covenant or the law that Israel lived under was that it did not actually fully forgive sin, it did not give the desire to obey, and it did not give the ability to obey. It was difficult. It was gracious of God in that people now knew what God desired, but they didn't have a desire to do it and they didn't have the ability to do it. What a game changer the new covenant is for you and I. That gives us the ability to obey by his spirit and gives us the desire to obey. It's an absolute game changer. God is not an angry father yelling at us because we don't desire to eat corn. That's Old Testament. New Testament, new covenant is that God is calling us to eat corn, if you will, and changing our taste buds and giving us the ability to do it so that we slowly but surely love it and we slowly but surely find an increasing ability to walk with him and walk well with him. So what do we do with this this morning as we wrap up? Two ideas here for you. First is this. Obedience is not solely obligation. No longer for you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, at the very end of this, verse 12, it says, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That The forgiveness of sins is yet another promise of the new covenant, and so Jesus offers himself and it is his blood shed on a cross that gives us an opportunity to enter a relationship with him. And entering into that relationship with him also brings about and affords us a whole set of other promises and privileges that we're detailing here in the New Covenant. But God is saying, not just that you're going to have a relationship with me, not just that your sins will be forgiven, but I'm going to come and I'm going to change your heart and I'm going to put in you the very ability to fulfill and to walk with me. And so for so many of us who, as we think about the spiritual life, if we feel inadequate in it, if we feel crushed by the commands of God, if we feel woefully inadequate to walk with him and to fulfill what he's called us to, the good news is this. One, you're not alone. Every single one of us has that feeling in a sense. Number two, God has worked through the provisions of this covenant a better covenant through a better priest to change our inadequacy in a way that we never, never could. We never were going to change our hearts and we were never going to come up and muster enough ability to fulfill what he's called us to but he gives us those things by his grace and by his love, which means that obedience is not solely obligation. It's not eating corn. It doesn't have to be. That if God has written his law on our hearts, if we know him, then it means that he's slowly but surely causing an affection to grow in us for the things that are righteousness. And so if you find yourself struggling against sin, if you find yourself struggling to walk with him, one of my encouragements is this, simply this, begin to pray that duty becomes delight. Begin to pray that duty would become delight. Working out for me, <laughs> all duty, no delight. All right, But I think for many of us, that's how we approach the spiritual life. Oh, I've got to read my Bible this morning. <laughs> i got to go share my faith. Are you kidding me? It's all duty. And when we approach the spiritual life that way, we've completely missed the nature of the priesthood of Jesus Christ and what he's done on our behalf, that it doesn't have to be duty anymore. That if we be willing to walk with him, he'll slowly but surely begin to grow in us a new set of taste buds, a new set of desires, a different inclination, a different disposition of the heart so that our heart delights in the law of God, as Paul will say in Romans chapter 7. That we wake up and we find a delight and a joy to know him and to walk with him and to make him known. Are there days that are dry? Are there days where it's just duty and it's effort? Yes, there are. There are dry seasons. But that doesn't have to be the normative experience that we have. That as the Spirit works in us, all of a sudden our hearts begin to shift and they begin to change. So that the more and more that we walk with Him, the more and the more that we find that we delight in righteousness and we don't delight in sin. Second thing is this for some of us, I want to remind you guys that resources always precede responsibility. Resources always precede responsibility. Uh, if you're clear what God has called you to, for many of us, there's a sense of inadequacy. I don't know how to walk with you, Lord. I don't know how to fulfill that that you've called me to. I don't know how to beat sin. I don't. If you're in that place, and I think one of the most encouraging things for me is that chapter 8 is absolutely revolutionary to say, you're not in it alone. Long before God would ever call you to something, he would extend to you the, resp- the resources to fulfill that responsibility. It's not about just follow through, grit your teeth. And so for some of you guys, uh, I'll say this, stop gritting your teeth and start depending on him. If for you, walking with God is about just gritting your teeth as hard as you can and trying as hard as you can in your own strength, you're never going to get very far. That's life under the old covenant. That's not what life has to look like now. Life now looks a lot like me teaching my kids how to play soccer, which this is my first spring I'm ever going to be a soccer coach of five-year-old girls with my man Will Reed over here. Pray for us. but as we've been teaching our kids to play soccer and teaching them how to kick the ball, our little boy who's two and a half now, I started with him even a while ago, and I remember for a while, he didn't really know how to kick the legs, and so what I would do initially is I would pick him up off the ground, and I would swing him back, and I would swing him through the ball, all right? I would teach him the motion of what it looks like to actually see the ball go, but I would provide all the strength to it, right? Was he a member? Was he a participant in that moment? Absolutely. Did he kick the ball? Absolutely. Was he going to do it by himself? Absolutely not right? That's a butt of, of a picture of what it looks like to walk with God by His Spirit, in which we find resources have been provided for the responsibilities that we've been called to. In a sense, God picks us up, swings us back, and pushes us right through what He's called us to do. It's an incredible picture of what it looks like to walk by the Spirit. But for so often, for so many of us, it's not at all what it feels like to walk by His Spirit. We grit our teeth, we grind it out, we try really hard, which is why we're exhausted, discouraged, and empty. Maybe it means that we ought to be looking and walking with him in a different kind of way, in which we begin to find that there's not about duty, but it's about desire, in which we begin to find that he's given us the ability to obey him, and so we need to stop trying in and of our own resources and strengths and rely on him and lean on him, as Paul will speak in Romans 8, walking by the power of the Spirit. It's a game changer, Hebrews chapter 8. Let me pray for us. Lord, we just come before you this morning, and for so many of us, we are just tapped out. We're dry. We're discouraged. Uh, we're overwhelmed with school this week. And as, it comes, as we think about walking with you, it often feels way more like duty than it feels like delight. And as we walk with you, we think way more about responsibility than we do about resources that you provided us. And I pray that you'd change that in us, that you'd encourage us this morning, that by the priesthood of Jesus Christ, not only do we have the forgiveness of sins, but it's a game changer in the promises it extended to us, that we don't have to just fulfill your commands out of gritting our teeth and out of bitterness and out of hatred. But you've allowed us and called us and, and invited us into a relationship in which you're changing our heart. You've been put within us the ability to walk with you, Lord, and I pray that you'd allow us to find that, that you'd teach us what it looks like to walk with you, to walk by your Spirit, uh, that you'd begin to open up for us a whole new way of walking with you by the provision and by the promises of the new covenant, which your Son, Jesus Christ, inaugurated by his blood. What a game changer. Lord, I pray that you would help us to sense those implications and have incredible discussions around the table this morning, in which you would help us to flesh out what it looks like, how we do it, and what it means if we're not walking in those ways, Lord. Might our discussions be really, really insightful, and might you lead us as you see fit, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Hey, one last thing for you guys as uh, we wrap up. And I just forgot. We just put up online all of our uh, leadership application stuff. And so if you're looking to get involved here in our college ministry, if you're looking to serve here at our church, uh, there's a whole host of ways to lead, to get involved in our, in our ministry. And again, if you ever feel inadequate, it's a wonderful place as you start exploring leadership. If you don't feel inadequate, it may not be for you. But in that place of inadequacy, as you lead and as you serve, God comes and he moves. And so love for you guys to know about that. Know about that. Deadline is going to be March 22nd, which is a Sunday after spring break. So we'd love for you guys to be praying through that. If you have questions, come grab us, email us. We'd love to help you guys sort through that. But we'd love to have you guys get involved in a new level with us. Love you guys. Y'all have a great discussion time.